Hello and welcome, independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, to Shadow Citizen. Welcome to Episode 9 with guest Charles Fortell. You can listen to our live broadcast and chat along at mixlr.com slash forward shadow citizen. We are also simulcast on radioconfluence.com, and from there you can take us with you on TuneIn and Xeno Live. For a schedule of upcoming guests and for past archives, please check out our website, shadowcitizen.online. And now we have some cool merchandise, so get your T-shirts and coffee cups and that kind of stuff. My name is Rob O'Sell, and my co-host is... Rachel L. McIntosh. Um, we've got a great guest today, and, and it makes me kind of queasy to even think about this, because last night and the night before, I stayed up and I watched every YouTube video I could, and I w- read everything that this man has written. Um, he's a Wall Street analyst, and he uncovered massive amounts of Clinton Foundation fraud. Um, he's a frequent guest on Bloomberg television, and he's a contributor to several different print and internet publications, including the Washington times. And he began his wall street career from June, 1980 through July, 2002 with Dylan Reed and company, which is where Catherine Austin Fitz worked. We just found that out the other day, kind of a cool thing. And then he went to the Bridgeford group and the chart group, um, He went to the Horace Mann School, Yale College, and Harvard Business School, and he spent a lot of time putting together a report um, about this um, Clinton Foundation. But anyhow, right now we've got Charles Ortel with us. And Charles, thank you for putting up with us and trying to hook up with us with your phone and everything else. We're dying to hear about this report you did. I had no idea that this was going on and it was this massive. So it's your turn to talk now, Charles. Go for it. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on. So um, I got into looking at the Clinton Foundation uh, by accident. Uh, I'm not really, uh, or I should say I'm I'm passionately against the idea of uh, partisan political uh, activity. Um, You know, in my earlier years, I probably voted more mostly for Republicans, but around about 2001, I began to get less and less enamored of the Republican Party, and I think the Democratic Party in the main, at least the leadership of it now, is out to lunch economically and with regards to geopolitics. So so I didn't come at this with a partisan bent. That mm-hmm. said, I obviously, when I started looking at this by accident in February of 2015, uh, when I did about a month's worth of work, I realized it was the biggest unprosecuted fraud in history and that by going down the path that I did go down, it likely would have an impact potentially on the election. So I wasn't you know, unmindful of the political uh, issues that surround this sort of an inquiry, but I care passionately about charity. And I think, you know, I think it was Montesquieu when he wrote his seminal book about America, you know, when he lived here and was interviewing so impressed with the American spirit, one of the things that he found distinctive way back when, I think in the 18th century, was uh, our charitable instincts in this country that, you know, even the poorest among us, somebody else has a problem, we're going to chip in, we're going to try to help uh, remedy unforeseen adversities. And that's mm-hmm. over time 
given the way America's grown up and the way this country's gotten richer and richer, our not-for-profit sector, uh, some reckon, is about a seventh the size of our total economy, making it alone, just the not-for-profit piece of it, um, bigger than something like 180 countries in the world are smaller than our not-for-profit sector. Wow. And when you, and when you get into it, as I did, uh, if you go onto my website, uh, which is simply my name, www.charlesortel.com, there's something called the First Foundation Report that I issued, I believe, on the 20th of April, 2015. And there's an appendix in it that gives people details, the best uh, estimates that the U.S. government puts out. And these are pretty granular estimates of how much money people spend on charity every year. And then our government estimates, you know, how much do the wealthy spend and how much do everybody else spend? And what you find is that actually in this country, yeah, Bill Gates gave a lot of money away and Warren Buffett gave a lot of money away. But the people who give disproportionately to charity are the bottom 80% of this country, the moms, the pops. And, you know, obviously a lot of that goes through religious institutions. But when we give money away, we expect the people who are operating charities to be honest. We expect them to truly care. We expect them to refrain from partisan political activity, which is actually illegal in a charity. And we certainly expect them to avoid trying to get rich off a charity, which is strictly forbidden. And so when I saw this back in, in February, March of 2015, and I realized what we had here, I decided this would be an excellent textbook case, how to teach the proper ways to run a charity by showing how badly this thing has gone wrong. Now, little did I anticipate that it would stand at the network, at the center of a network of crooked charities. It's right. not simply the Clinton Foundation. Yep. There's, a, there's many other media matters. The Gates Foundation, sadly, has gotten its, itself stuck up in this mess. Um, multiple other charities uh, are, are engaging in activity which ordinarily is severely punished, including by sending people to prison for decades. During the primaries, didn't uh, didn't Trump at one point you know want to contribute to the wounded warriors, and uh, <clears throat> then he found out that all the money is kind of being distributed at the very top for the administrative purposes, and very few, little of the money is getting to the wounded warriors. So, yeah, this is sort of s- systemic through uh, a lot of the charitable, you know, foundations. And you talked about the well, reverse Robin Hood effect, right? So, so yeah, I mean, the thing is that. What, what, you, what you find out, I disagree with Warren Buffett on a lot of matters relating to investments. I don't think his track record is all that good from 1998 forward. But one, one of the things I agree with him on, he said that it's actually very difficult to give large amounts of money away responsibly. And the reason for that is that in 2017, governments around the world are big. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of money that flies all over the world in theory to these places that need a lot of help. A textbook case, for example, would be Haiti that got over $10 billion. No one really knows what ha- whatever happened to that money. And Bill Clinton personally was very much involved uh, overseeing what I think was the looting of money destined to Haiti. So it's tough to um, – it's very tough to, to find uh, pe- people who deserve the type of aid that we can give away on the scale that we give away and a dead clue that a charity – is probably not all it, it's cracked up to be is when you start see it, seeing it advertising on television. I mean, that's expensive. Mm-hmm. And a yeah. good cause does not need a television ad. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, should we start this whole thing with the, the very beginnings of the Clinton Foundation in 1997? And then how that sure. was, we could start there and then blow it right up to like the ridiculousness with Haiti and India. I don't know if people, I mean, people sure. know about Haiti. They sort of know about Haiti. They, I don't know if they know about India at all. Um, but the very beginnings of it, it sounded legit until, so why don't we start in 1997 when they decided to, to do this? Okay, well, I, I would like to just um, correct you at the outset. Oh, okay, go right ahead. This thing, this thing has been a fraud from the day it started. Okay. And if we go back to 1997, uh, you know, I'm 61, so I remember 1997 very well. Um, I, my, that, at that point, my children were uh, both under the age of 10. And so in 1997, I really didn't appreciate having to, you know, having my daughter asking me questions about what was going on in Bill Clinton's White House. Mm -hmm. And we will remember, we will remember that what happened in 97 is that early in the year, um, it became apparent that uh, a fund that had been set up to raise money for their, to pay for legal expenses had solicited money from foreign nationals, which is strictly against the law. And so the first presidential defense fund had to be wound up. That, that news happened, I want to say, springtime 97. Then around about the middle of the year, uh, the Clintons had been using every um, argument in their arsenal to try to slow the increase uh, in the Paula Jones case. Mm. And the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that that had to go forward. So just at the time where their troubles began to mount, their ability to tap um, the public for, uh, for money to pay for their legal expenses seemed to be constrained by the Charlie Tree revelations. So it was then, by October 23rd, 1997, that they formed this charity. Now, mm -hmm. the way, when you go through a charity, it's actually useful to take a second and explain it. The first thing you do, generally, is you have to create a real legal form. The three of us couldn't get together and sort of in our spare time ask people for money and then give it to a good cause. No, the IRS says you have to have a legal entity. And most people choose what's called a nonprofit corporation. A nonprofit corporation is not a federally tax exempt charity yet. It's just the legal form you pick. And then you have to fill out this exhaustive application, which I think is actually an excellent document. You lay a marker down in your, in your application. Here you are trying to put a charity together to do good works only. And you must answer the forms fully and completely and truthfully. And if you don't, and the IRS later discovers that you lied or you, know, you weren't telling the whole truth in the application, the IRS has the right for the rest of the life of your charity to say, hang on, 25 years ago, you said X, Y, and Z. We took you at your word because we can't check everybody carefully. And we discovered that X, Y, Z is actually you know, one, two, three something radically different. And the IRS can go back and retroactively revoke the charter. So what happened is they put this application in on December 23rd, 1997. It was approved, I think, on January 28th or 29th, 1998. And the purpose of this thing was and always has been, and there's a very important distinction between the purpose of a charity and its activities. The purpose has to be approved. The purpose has to be charitable. And the purpose of this thing was to be a presidential archive, which is not a memorial to Bill Clinton. 
It's a building where you house the records created during his two terms as, as president and a related research facility to have been based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And that's it. That okay, is so, all so it's mostly like a, was it. It's a building project. That was a building project. And they were going to just right. keep it, everything in this building on in this they were it was nonprofit because they were doing it as like a favor to the people of America. Well, no, no? sort of. Yes, Rachel. It, 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 nonprofit is defined. Federally tax exempt purposes are defined in the statute. Mm-hmm. They are in the relevant 501 stat, statute. They lay out, you know, this, these are tax exempt purposes, relief of the poor, education, you know, bump, 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 bump. And, and this under the uh, federally tax exempt statute, this qualified. And in addition, and this is a wrinkle that the Clintons haven't wanted to admit yet. There's a special statute that defines what a presidential archive actually is. Oh. And a presidential archive is, is not, you know, just anything Bill decides it might be. Records are created during the term of his presidency. Those records are the property of we the people, not Bill Clinton, not Hillary Clinton, not Chelsea Clinton, not anybody else. Those records once they are, once they leave office, are can be transferred to this kind of presidential library. But in order for um, uh, the presidential library to take possession of these records, which are the property of we the people, the presidential library must actually be a lawfully organized and operated charity, which this thing never has been. Mm. So every uh, president, you know, ends up getting a, a presidential library, and I'm not sure how far back, but, you know, we've obviously seen the debates, you know, in the Ronald Reagan presidential library. But isn't, you know, I guess I just didn't really think of this as being something that the the former president themselves has to start a charity to raise money for. Uh, could you go into that a little bit more briefly? I mean, don't we just assume that the president sure. is going to have a historical library? No. So the way it worked is that the first thing is that the Presidential Libraries Act, I believe, was promulgated in 1955. After that point, in it was clarified, I believe, in 19, uh, I want to say 86 or so. But um, because when Nixon was forced to resign, there was a question as to, you remember his missing uh, recordings and this. T- there was a question as to what constituted presidential records. And we see the similar thing with Hillary Clinton serving as Secretary of State. You know, are all the emails uh, the property of the people? Are some of them? How do you draw distinctions, et cetera? So the law was clarified, and it, uh, the statute makes abundantly clear what was supposed to have happened. And the statute also began, uh, the, the taxpayers began to get concerned about, you know, do we really need a new library for every new president? I mean, after all, you know, uh, <laughs> there ought to be some benefits of technology. Look at what you can do with Google now. Do you really need a new building uh, complex that needs to be heated and cooled and insured uh, for every president? So the uh, restrictions were tightened. In- initially, when Bill did his library, uh, the statute provided that in order for the foundation to um, be up and running as a foundation and to contribute these papers, uh, <clears throat> into the National Archives and Records Administration, which administers these presidential libraries, you had to provide an endowment 
to the National Archives and Records Administration. Back then, it was 20% of the construction cost. Okay. And now, for President Obama, it's 60%. Oh. And, it's, and, and there's a whole long story we can get into about the, about the Clinton Library. I, I believe that the, the Clinton trustees defrauded the National Archives by understating, for the purposes of calculating the endowment, way below the true cost of this, this uh, foundation. By putting an indefensibly low number in, they kept the endowment to only uh, $7.2 million. They said that the library portion was $36 million to the National Archives uh, on November 18, 2004. But in the books and records that ultimately were created, um, and I would argue not in compliance with law, that same period by December 31, 2004, so six weeks later, they claimed that the whole complex had cost them $165 million. So how do you say it's $36 million to the National Archives and $165 million in total? That doesn't make any sense. It's almost uh-huh. it's almost counterintuitive in a, in a way, you know, especially in light of like the Nixon tapes and that that uh, the president themselves, a former president, would kind of be in charge of uh, you know maintaining the. Well, I, I realize what you're saying that it's actually a national endowment, but I mean, you you started this all out that saying those records are the property of the people. Anything that they say while they're in office, any of their any of the tapes, any of their uh, documents should be the property of the people, and so. Uh, it, I don't know. It just seems like uh, uh, an easy way for people to go in and kind of clean up after themselves the information that they don't want to get out. So, right. I mean, and you know, the other thing to just bear in mind here is that I think there are about more than one million charities in the United States, and you know, so the people who get involved with a charity, I bet you, you both are probably involved. You know, people who are involved. They tend to do this charity work without getting paid. They tend to shoulder the expenses. You know, they, it's not something you do to get rich. Mm-hmm. And the people I know who, who do a good job about it, they don't want publicity, right? In, in the Jewish tradition, I, I was told um, last week that you actually can't take credit for charity, that if you do that, uh, some people, the Jewish faith, certain portions of the Jewish faith think that's not really charity because you're gaining from it. So. Um, there are a lot of really good people, millions of people in this country and around the world who do good works. And th- therefore, there are few examples as egregious as the Clinton case. So, you know, when I have been talking to other people, you know, about this in the past early on, they would say, well, you know, if, if, you, if what you say is true, how come, we, how come no one's done anything about it? How come there are examples of other charities that have done this type of stuff? Well, because no one has dared to be this egregious. It's like saying, you know, how come there aren't, you know, more religious leaders who are mass murderers? You know, I mean, well, because you don't get into the mass murdering business if you're a religious leader. And similarly, in charity land, you know, yes, there are fraudsters because a lot of the people who give to charity are gullible, sadly. But, uh, and, and yes, the charity world attracts fraudsters. Yeah. But, you know, not to the same degree that you might find it in the for-profit world. 
I, I was talking with I, Rachel beforehand here and, uh, you know, just said, you know, I, I was not having a good time during uh, the Bush administration. When Clinton came in, it was like all of a sudden I was real busy and working all the time and I had extra money. And so I was giving to money to like Greenpeace and uh, Union of Concerned Scientists. But, yeah, it's something that as Americans, as working people, when we're too busy to volunteer ourselves, we just think, well, you know, we're making money, so we yeah, we do give it out, and we do expect there to be some uh, accountability for where that money is being spent. So back to the situation, right, right, that's right, Rob, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm still, I'm looking at my notebook, I'm still looking at Little, Little Rock, and it was $64 million that they had put down, but really, it came up to 165 and it, they, originally well, they no, said no. $36 million, and it went up to 165 well, yeah. Let, let's let, let's take this, if if we may, in some pieces. So, when when you set up a charity, um, and, and this one was established first in Little Rock, um, you have to comply with Arkansas law, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I don't believe they've complied with. They provide no evidence that they've actually complied with Arkansas law. Um, and then, when you start fundraising outside your home state, you have to be very careful because if the fundraising uh, goal is more than a very small amount for charity. I think it's like 25,000 in New York state. There are really strict rules. What you have to tell, you know, New York state and California and Illinois and Minnesota, they all have rules. And what these state regulators care about, particularly in states like New York, where there is a, where there are high taxes, a lot of rich people and a lot of high income. So there's a lot of uh, possibility to commit fraud. Um, what they care about in the, in the main is that, first of all, the promoters of the charity identify themselves in any deficiencies or defects in their backgrounds. Think, I was impeached, Bill Clinton. I had to surrender my law licenses in Arkansas and before the Supreme Court. Those are serious defects for anybody trying to raise money that would have to be disclosed and, of course, were never disclosed. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to disclose that. And then when you, you have to tell the state, why are you raising money? You can't come into New York and say, we're raising money for a library and then spend the money to fly around on chartered jets, in theory, fighting HIV AIDS around the world. You're just not allowed to do that. You can't raise money for an endowment and spend it for operating expenses. Mm-hmm. And yes. you should bring that up about flying around the world and fighting AIDS because was that happening at right the, around the same time? They, they started doing that uh, in January, of, by January of 2002. Okay. But even before we get there, the other thing you have to do is you have to get your results audited. Now, some of your listeners will likely know the difference between when, when somebody says audit, you have to be very careful. There are different levels of audit. And some states are very sloppy about laying out what the requirements are. Others like New York and California are very strict. Um, But this charity from the get-go was required to have an audit and it never has provided a legally compliant financial audit for any period it has operated since October 23rd, 1997. Not one year. They have been passing off work product as being audits, but they are not legally compliant audits. And how, so, how do they get away with that? Again, it's it's because you know they they figured out that the apparatus, the federal apparatus, has got a lot of Democrat uh, operatives in it. 
Uh, and the IRS and the Department of Justice at federal level have a lot of Democrat operatives in it, witness the disclosure forms that went out last year in the 2016 election, what percentage of federal employees uh, supported Trump and what supported Hillary Clinton. And then in individual states, I mean, you know, New York is a subsidiary of the Democratic Party. California, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, and on top of which, none of these states, even New York, which has got, you know, quite a big bureaucracy, none of these states really has the ability to second guess Arkansas and, you know, do the type of detail work that I've done for free for the last two years. But, you know, very few states will ever do that. So this thing has grown and grown and grown. Now, to go back to the HIV AIDS thing, what happened was, in, in 2001, on the 18th, I think it was, of January 2001, right. Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich. Okay. And that caused a furor um, and actually triggered an FBI investigation, we've learned in the last several months, because the FBI vault website, the official FBI website, has released notes pertaining to their investigation, which started around February 15th, 2002. And the FBI had the ability and did impanel, uh, I believe, two different grand juries to look at what really happened. And they should have been able to figure out way back when, you know, what really happened to whatever money may have been raised in this early period, which, if you remember, in 2000, a certain Hillary Clinton was running for Senate and she needed money for that. And so they should have been able back then to get to the bottom of it. But the result of all these investigations and the hubbub and the furor and the transition of George W. Bush was that, you know, the project of raising money for a library, you know, when donors uh, <laughs> were, would learn that, you know, any amount above $5,000 and the FBI was going to be all over you to try to figure out whether you'd given money in the run-up to the Mark Rich pardon. So it was tough to get the money raised just for the stated purpose of, the Little Rock Library and Research Facility. Right. When did they actually, I'm sorry, but when did they actually break the ground at Little Rock? Because they started in 97, but Little Rock didn't actually get built till a few years later, right? And then that's... They didn't even even start, I don't think, until uh, I want to say around December of... 2002 it might have been 2001 or 2002 and that time is when they broke ground and the reason for that is the little rock project um was complicated what they did is i believe it was in north little rock uh, it's sort of you can't make this kind of stuff up but the the portion of little rock where the library now sits was ancient in ancient times known as muddy waters that's right <laughs> okay <laughs> i swear like and, a swamp. And not far okay. away from, <laughs> and not far away from where they ultimately built the structure. Structure was actually a pool hall called Slick Willie's that is now uh-huh. I think gone. Perfect. But anyway, Perfect. Yeah. they had to take this derelict property. They had to raise money in a revenue bond, which they did in 1998. There were all kinds of lawsuits about whether the the, the state should actually be using tax revenue for this purpose, and those lawsuits didn't get resolved until I want to say 2002. And so, so it wasn't until I ran, I want to say December 6 or 7, 2002, that they were able to break ground on the facility. And you ask an excellent question. What were they doing with the money? In, you know, and did they declare all the incoming money that they may have gotten prior to then is the big question. So with a, with a charity that's run 
you know, with poor to non-existent controls. The big question is not what's in the books. The big question is what isn't in the books. Yeah, so what money was spent in the name of the Clinton Foundation to accounts where the money was, the, ca the checks were cashed, but has never been declared. You're going to run a charity this way. I'm going to back up just a little bit for something from chat here. And the question is asked in chat, didn't Arkansas Savings and Loan launder $100 million a month for Iran-Contra money, and this would be a year after the Gary Webb Dark Alliance. So, I mean, we had a full congressional hearing on this stuff, and yet, you know, what became of it? It all turned into, you know, Monica Lewinsky, which, you know, just buried everything. So, Well, yeah, I mean, Arkansas, I mean, I've only been to Arkansas once, um, and, you know, Arkansas in finance land, has, I would say, uh, a richly deserved reputation or had in the period where Bill was still there of being a place where, you know, if you could, you could, you could uh, invest in politicians and you could get politicians to look the other way and regulate your industry lightly. Witness the chicken farming of the Tyson, witness truckers, witness uh, Walmart, and witness the issuance of all these various and sundry uh, municipal and, and other types of bond deals, which were put out in the Arkansas, via the Arkansas legal apparatus. So yeah, I mean, there, there was and is, frankly, still uh, a reputation in Arkansas that it's, it's fast and loose down there. And, and yet, okay. you know, the, the congressional hearing, I mean, why did all of this stuff, you know, not come out then? You know, why couldn't we have started, you know, draining the swamp or just not let the swamp get so, like you say, muddy waters or whatever? Yeah, I, I don't understand. We have, uh, you know, we've had full Republican uh, Congresses in, you know, in the meantime, and yet this stuff just keeps on going on, and it seems to keep getting worse. Well, yeah, uh, you know, part of the reason could be that, you know, what we have, I think, in this country is we have the emergence of what I call the Uniparty. Mm -hmm. You have the uh, Bush wing of the Republican Party and the Clinton-Obama wing. Of the, of the Democratic Party, and you know, on certain issues, anything pertaining to do with regulation or crony capitalism issues, they're indistinguishable. You know, they'll say one thing to their respective audiences, but when they go into the back room to get the bills across the line with all the, you know, the earmarks and everything else, they'll do another. So, you know, it could be that in the period you're talking about, uh, that you know, the Bush 2000 election was obviously high, top, um, hotly contested. We know that the Clintons, because it's a matter of public record, their agents uh, got a whole bunch of FBI files. The ones that we know about are, are Republican files. We don't know whether they also got Democrat files. And, you know, who knows what sort of leverage the Clintons may have had against the Bushes, against people in, in the regulatory apparatus. Who knows how many of their acolytes still are working in the federal government and in key judgeships uh, around this country. So the Clintons even defeated in 2016, still have residual power. And, you know, it's it's fallen, I believe, to people in your audience and to Donald Trump and his supporters, and really supporters of Bernie Sanders, uh, to finally say, you know what, we ought to have one rule for, frankly, everything, but in the charity world that applies equally, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or apolitical, charities need to be run for their intended purposes full stop not for politics, not to make yourself rich. And that seems to me to be something that, you know, we should be able all to agree on. And frankly, I find myself on uh, progressive radio 
a lot. Started from May of last year, I was on probably progressive radio stations more than anything else. And um, and and really, it's you know, it's it's people who want to see government disrupted, government you know fall to the same um, realities that we in the private sector have to deal with. The fact that you know jobs are disappearing, incomes are under threat, costs are rising. Why should government bureaucrats just be allowed to grow and grow and grow and you know none of their work is ever challenged. None of their results are ever examined. They're never held accountable. You know, why is that fair? Yeah. Well, well that's kind of the the reason for our name here, Shadow Citizen, is that we have noticed that, you know, the uniparty that you spoke of and how, yeah, this class of citizens seems to be above the, the law. The, the laws don't apply to them, but they certainly apply to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, I, I want to go, so we're at Little Rock. We're still talking about Little Rock. And we're talking about, maybe a hundred million dollars that kind of disappeared. Nobody knows where it is. Um, but then it, I want to start moving up because that isn't the long and short of it. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not just about this library anymore. It started growing. Right. Right. So what, what happened here, and I'm, I'm very squeamish, which makes it difficult for me to talk about health matters, but um, I, I've spent a fair amount of time now, and I feel comfortable uh, getting into this whole issue of HIV and AIDS, which obviously, you know, if you go back to the 90s, um, when Bill was still president, um, the situation around about 96, uh, the medical community, the established medical community, uh, felt comf- comfortable that by using what are called antiretroviral drugs um, daily, in a carefully monitored way with real medical attention um, so that you could, you could um, deal with side effects and adjust medications accordingly. But you could actually, that AIDS was no, or be, being diagnosed as HIV positive was no longer a death sentence, medically speaking, because these antiretrovirals would prolong your life uh, long enough so that you'd likely die of other causes than the progression of HIV and the full-blown AIDS. That was the good news in 96. But the bad news was that those drugs were patent protected and they cost about $10,000, roughly $10,000 per year, putting them way out of the reach of the majority of people around the world who it was thought might have HIV. So that was the original theory um, and that got the scientific and political world and popular imagination inflamed with the notion that we needed to uh, migrate and make these drugs available at the lowest possible cost wherever we could around the world. So there was almost, you know, you look at it in, in history, it was almost a pell mell rush to get this job accomplished. Now, there are some pretty good statistics on all this. And one of them that I was shocked to see is that in the number of, doc- initially shocked, the number of the physicians, licensed physicians, in this country and in the, in the Western countries is typically for every 100,000 people in the West, in Japan, places like that, um, you could say round numbers are 2,500 to 3,000 physicians on average. Um, and of course, in the West, we have electricity everywhere. We have uh, roads, we have transportation systems. And actually in the West, the statistics suggest that most of our people live in cities. Mm-hmm. So it is possible to treat uh, these patients efficiently in a Western context. Now you compare that to Africa, certain nations in Africa, 
Uh, there, there's no electricity. There are no paved roads. There are no physicians. Where I said there are 2,500 to 3,000 physicians, you know, in the West, in Ethiopia, from memory, there for every 100,000 people, there's 60 physicians. Oh gosh, yeah. You know, and it, so, and you can't just, you know, this isn't like taking. Well, actually, aspirin is dangerous as well, but this isn't like taking, you know, something that's a trivial. Uh, medicine that has you know minimal side effects. You give this uh, these certain types of antiretroviral drugs to somebody who has a liver condition or uh, has you know some other problems, and you and, and they don't take the medicine regularly, or for some reason the medicine isn't stored properly. Um, you can kill these people with this medicine. So it wasn't clear that just, you know, sending boxes of this medicine around the world to places where there were no health systems was the smartest thing to do. Now, anyway, what happened is Ira Magaziner, by January of 2002, according to an excellent book in, written by a left-wing author, Joe Connison, but very well written, um, it's quite chatty. It goes into great detail what really happened. Obviously, Connison had access to the Clinton uh, team and to, to Magaziner, but Ira Magaziner ends up basically taking charge of the what they called initially the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS initiative. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> there, there are no records in the public domain for the activities of this entity from when it started around January 2002 um, until March 24, 2004. There are no records at all. And you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you, well, didn't they, they sort of just that. did that with their Clinton Foundation library. They went a few years without doing anything. So now this, they sort of did the same thing. There's no records of anything. Stuff's going on. Bill Clinton's marching around the planet, though, raising money for this initiative, this AIDS, AIDS charity. Right. 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 And, and what he did is he, he started, and, he, and the thing about it that's kind of amazing is that, that Bill has written quite a few different books, and you know, maybe he lied in his own book, books plural, but he admits exactly how he did this. He says that he's, it started by July of 2002. Other books say it started as, as early as June 2002. But there are multiple press releases. I mean, you're a former president of the United States. You're on a topic like HIV AIDS at a moment where the world and still deeply cares about this topic. There's a mountain of evidence in the public domain that I've been organizing that shows that he was centrally involved, raising hundreds of millions of dollars from governments claiming that he was doing so in the name of the Clinton Foundation when he was not even an officer or a director or an employee of the Clinton Foundation or even a named agent of the Clinton Foundation, nor was Magaziner. Okay. And you're just, you're not allowed to do that. You know, if uh, U.S. charities must be controlled tightly from a U.S. base. And, right. you know, if you're going to change your purpose, you got to change it in the Articles of Incorporation of your legal document. They've never done that. And you have to register it. But so that, did, yeah, they did, did they actually start another foundation called the Clinton AIDS Charity, or there was nothing? They so were just called. Until, they, uh, they 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 just started calling their effort the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS Initiative. Uh-huh. It is possible that they they formed a charity in the Bahamas okay. uh, in in two thousand two. Uh, we're getting mixed signals. I've sent people down to the Bahamas to try to get documents, and we're close to actually getting these. But um, by March 24th, 2004, they did form a new entity called Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS Initiative, Inc., in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And they may have filed this Form 1023 that I told you about earlier in the broadcast, but, but that's, a, that's a document that the public has every right to see, which is not in the public domain. And my suspicion is that they were turned down in, that, uh, in their request to form that entity because they had failed to disclose these activities we were talking about from 2002 to March 23, 2004. You are not allowed to start a charity first and file your application later. You know, otherwise the IRS would have no control, right? Right. You, you have to and, and this form your corporation. Just, yeah, and this just isn't just uh, like the maybe 35 million for this library anymore. Now we're talking about millions and millions of dollars from governments. Like I heard you talking about Ireland gave 110 million euro and Norway gave it gave 25 million euro. euro. 25 million from Canada and Switzerland Switzerland gives 650 million and it's not it's not accounted for yeah and Australia so yeah I mean the other the other thing you raise a good point here so so the the individual state forms California is very strict New York's very strict require you to list out every single donation by a government to a charity now why is that important Governments, foreign, you know, there's a lot of talk about how the Russians may have been trying to influence this election. Mm-hmm. Um, governments can get to politicians by making contributions to their charities. And as an example of this, John McCain, who's very much critical of Trump, has a, ch- a charity called the McCain Institute. Mm-hmm. And there's something called the McCain Institute Foundation. And in their most recent filing, John McCain, who's chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, has not connected the dots on his Senate forms to explain why the government of Saudi Arabia, through its Washington, D.C. embassy, gave the McCain Institute $1 million uh-huh. out of the 1.7 or 8 that they made in 2014. That's a very significant donation, which our state forms in New York and in California would, would, would cause you to actually explain and so similarly, the Clinton Foundation, the concern was and is that governments who are barred from, from financing, you know, intervening in political campaigns would get around that loophole by making large donations to a foundation. And so the public has a right to know when this happens. And of course, the Clintons have refused to comply with that rule. And they on top to of comply with the state. Even, right. And on top of all this, this, this AIDS charity that Switzerland gave 650 million to, which I, from what I heard you say, 100 million are not accounted for. The, we, you, I also heard you talking about how the drugs themselves were not even legit. Yeah, and that's, this is really serious stuff. And so we, we've been having a, a lot of people look into this. I was successful, and there's a wonderful congressperson in, in uh, Tennessee named Marsha Blackburn, who became aware, their staff became aware of my work. And uh, so we had meetings in Washington, several meetings, and they issued a report last year uh, precisely on this topic. There, there is a diabolical company that still exists called Rambaxi, R-A-N-B-A-X-Y. And in India, um, you know, obviously a lot of people in India, they have different rules about health and patents. And there, there's a gigantic uh, pharmaceutical industry in India. Now, back in 2001, two timeframe, 
the Indian stock market was still very small. It had only begun the country to transition from socialism towards capitalism around about 96, 95, 96. So their stock market had yet to take off. And this company, Rambaxi, had actually been around for a while. It had relatively small market value. But they saw very quickly, in part because they were dealing with a, this unbelievable crook, Rajat Gupta, who was the chairman of, of McKinsey. Uh, McKinsey was at that time working for Rambaxi, helping them think through how they become a gigantic company. And of course, separately, Rajat Gupta, as it turns out, was paying off the Clinton family from 2002 to 2008 through a vehicle called Mind Spirit LLC. This is a matter of public record. Okay. And um, lo and behold, Ranboxy ended up signing agreements with the Clinton Foundation, one in October of 2003, when the Clinton Foundation had no right to sign such an agreement in India, uh, promoting the sale of Ranboxy drugs. They signed that agreement. They don't tell the governments exactly the nature of these agreements. There's a clear conflict of interest I mean, on many levels. You're not lawfully organized to do this work. You signed an agreement with a drug supplier. <laughs> Who knows how Ira Magazine and others may have been compensated by that drug supplier. And now you're gonna urge governments to buy these Renbaxi drugs. Well, come August of 2004, and Renbaxi is on record as having provided drugs through the Clinton Foundation, to these various governments in the Caribbean and Africa, et cetera, uh, the government of South Africa contacts um, Renbaxi and says, get your boys from India down here to South Africa immediately. We have a serious problem. An investigation is started, and before long, a man who ultimately becomes a whistleblower realizes that until August of 2004, not a single pill manufactured by Renbaxi, it's a big company, not one of those pills had been tested. Yeah. They've been yeah. faking. They've been faking their test results. <laughs> They've been okay. sending people. I mean, there's there's a story actually. It's 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 so sad. It's it's funny, but there's a story in called Dirty Medicine in Fortune magazine. I would encourage your audience to read it and really care about this. They talk about how the um, this company would send when they needed a test result to come in positive, they'd tell an executive in the United States to go buy a brand name version of the drug and fly it over in the briefcase oh, and then put man. it in the test lab. <laughs> and they had a special room in one of these facilities where they would steam paper to make it age and look, you know, they had, it was just this incredible that, that's Fraud. like something out of a and movie. So, that's like, yeah. Well, it should it should be a movie. It should be a movie. And then this is the this is the one that's really going to get people's blood pressures rising. But in the Dirty Medicine article, it's, it claims that when the executives went up the chain to, to make their finding and say we really need to change all this to the CEO of Ranbaxy, the CEO is quoted as saying, "Why do you care about all this? All we're doing is killing black people in Africa." <gasps> oh my gosh! It's in the article. Oh my gosh. It's in the article. So, so, you know, you read this, when I saw that, you know, that article, actually, that's when I said, I'm going to make this a crusade because this is just not right. It is yeah. not right to do this kind of behavior. It is not right. You're the president, former president of the United States. You're the aspiring president of the United States. Your name is on the door of this foundation. You've been taking credit around the world for all the good work you've been doing. In fact, you haven't been doing good work. You may actually have been killing people. Right. And and we need to get to the bottom of what's really happened here. 
So now that was going on and fast forward to like closer to now, then we've got Haiti, the disaster. So that's India. Now we've got the disaster in Haiti. Both, wait, back, 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 back to Mackenzie. Is that the same place that Chelsea Clinton worked? Exactly right. Ah, all right. So there you go. There's a connection. All right. Back. So now we moving out of India. We're going over to Haiti. Haiti. We we've got what two? What do we got? Ten minutes left in our whole time here. Yeah. I don't know how we can get this sure. across to people because this thing is starting to blow, get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's no longer just a couple million, a few million over in Arkansas. Now we're dealing with literally millions. We're getting into the 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 billions part. I, I, I want to just would... add one little thing here, and that's, you know, uh, vaccine companies or pharmaceutical companies are notorious for dumping their leftover product, you know, at at, at regular price in third world countries. So, uh, you know, this is outrageous, of course, that a, a former president is involved with it, but it's also something that, once again, is kind of systemic through the uh, pharmaceutical industry. So now we can move on to Haiti, but yeah, I wanted well, to get yeah, that in. Yeah, what you just said is true. Like, for instance, uh, Costa Rica... They now use all these different um, vaccines for kids that they never used to do. But when America got rid of the um, the thimerosal and the vaccines for the kids, they sent them all down to Costa Rica, and they were sell- they're still using them in Costa Rica. Yeah, but anyhow, continue with our. Yeah, well, see, this is another area where, for example, you know, I can agree with Bernie Sanders. I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time in India. I was on the board of a company over there, and I, my last time there, I was there for three months in a row. Um, you know, there is every reason why we should be able to get the prices of drugs down. You know, healthcare in this country typically involves, you know, once you get a condition, taking pills for the rest of your life. And so it's critically important. I mean, obviously, you need to get a encourage people to innovate and all that. But, um, you know, the prices of drugs should not be so crazily high as they are now here in this country versus the rest of the world. There's got to be a way to crack through that. Now, in, in the case of Haiti, um, there is a wonderful human being. Her name is D-A-D-Y and then C-H-E-R-Y, Dottie Cherry. If you look her up, she is a, a biologist by training, but she's also a journalist and she's from Haiti. She's written exhaustively about this. She's helped educate me. But the bottom line here is that the Clintons have been pillaging Haiti for decades. Mm -hmm. And Haiti is a place that just cannot seem to catch a break. I I was listening to a broadcast this morning about it that, you know, we had our revolution in 1776, 1789, and we, you know, we won freedom for most people. Haiti in 1804 won freedom for everybody. And, you know, there's a long tortured history in Haiti. Uh, various and sundry foreign interests exploiting um, exploiting that country. But if we fast forward to January, uh, I think it was 18th, 2010, uh, when the earthquake hit Haiti, it had had its share of problems right before then, I think in 2008 as well. But Bill Clinton by this time was special envoy to Haiti. And he uh, got himself... Uh, made the co-chairman of the Interim Haiti uh, Recovery Committee, which uh, Dottie jokes is is actually IHRC stand for I, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, But anyway, they uh, used the earthquake to to launch fundraising appeals. Different estimates are out there, some as low as $9.5 billion, others as high as $14 billion for money that went towards Haiti. But 
less than 3% of that has actually arrived inside Haiti. And no one knows what's really happened. And Bill Clinton refuses to account for any of this. So you know, Haiti is a case in point where, you know, when Hillary was on the campaign trail last year, she would talk about how, you know, if, if they were elected, Bill would revitalize the American economy. And I would always fire back. You mean the way he revitalized Haiti? Oh, my God. I mean, Haiti is still falling down. No roads, no doctors, no electricity. Uh, they managed under the Clinton, uh, through Clinton intercession, to turn Haiti, a country which made its own rice, to guess what, a country that imports its rice from where? Southeastern Arkansas. No. They uh, entered, yep, and it's now dependent on that. They, they've gone uh, they, under the Clintons using Cheryl Mills. Cheryl Mills apparently uh, was in league with a Korean textile manufacturer who now backs her in this thing called Black Ivy. But they decided that they'd use Haiti as a, as a sweatshop. So the Clintons have been keeping, um, you know, moved textile manufacturing into Haiti at, you know, 30 to 50 cent an hour wages in processes that pollute the water. Um, and, you know, this, this is just disgusting. It is disgusting, especially it's especially considering all this, the, the chatter and, and stuff you hear about Pizzagate and Pediogate and how I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard this um, a lot that the Clinton Foundation or somebody associated with the Clinton Foundation was involved in human trafficking. And there was a, a girl, a woman, excuse me, a woman was down there trying to investigate this and she ended up dead. Um, and so that's yeah. kind of a weird thing, too. Yeah, no, I, I know nothing about, you know, I'm not an expert on human trafficking and obviously that's horrible. Uh, but. I have not personally investigated that side of the story, but yeah, I can tell you, j just just on the the stuff I have investigated that's up on my website. Uh, by contrast, there's an African American congressman who lost election in a special election last November. She had served in Congress for more than 20 years, <clears throat> who was indicted um, during the summer last year over an $800,000 slush fund. This is a Democrat mm -hmm. woman. African-American woman indicted by the Obama Justice Department facing 357 years in federal prison for 800,000 over three, four, five years. Now, the Clinton Foundation in its declared books is more than two billion. We're going on now 20 years. Tough, really, when you think about the allied frauds, Haiti, the Global Fund, other places, you can very quickly get up into the 100 billion. Then you think about deals that have been done concocted out of this mess illegally, you can easily get into the trillions. And, you know, this to me is, is something that you're trying to drain the swamp. All you have to do here is apply the laws that are on the books to the facts that, that the FBI and others can ferret out here if they roll up their sleeves. But why aren't they? Putting... But why aren't they, Charles? Why won't they? Is this well, just you know, too big? It touches too many sides of, I mean, we're talking a trillion dollars. That's a lot. I, I think in part the reason, Amy, think about it, we still have, I'm amazed that the current head of the IRS is that guy, John Koskinen, who uh, last, late last year, the House was trying to impeach him. And for some reason, he's still there. You know, the person, the critical person in the IRS over charities was actually Lois Lerner. Mm -hmm. there, there's a tax exempt organizations department is what she headed. And that's the group that sits on top of all this. I mean, you have on Haiti, back on Haiti. In 2010, the largest grant 
of the Clinton Foundation was the Clinton Bush Haiti Fund. And they filed their tax forms for 2010 and 2011. Then they had to amend them in 2015 for 2010. And they repeated this error twice, and it's a flagrant error. Largest grant, $37.2 million, is to the Clinton-Bush-Haiti Fund at a post office box in Baltimore, Maryland. Only that's not its address. Its address is in Washington, D.C. In addition, roughly $3.4 million was supposedly sent in vehicles and clothes to a post office box in, in, in Maryland. Well, how do you do that? And how do you operate this Clinton-Bush-Haiti Fund in Haiti without any Haitian bank accounts? Which is what they declare on the tax form. I remember. I remember during so, the primaries about uh, the Haitian ambassadors, you know, saying you have to do something, Mr. Trump, about the Clintons. They've stole all the money that was meant to go to uh, meant to go to yeah, Haiti. Yeah, right? yeah. I remember seeing that too, Ralph. And uh, but yeah. in the meantime, we've got two minutes left. So uh, Charles, once again, how you know what's going to the work? All the stuff that you've uncovered. Uh, do you have? you know, backers that are going to help you bring this into some sort of court uh, or, you know, move the investigation further? Or how can we help you? How get can this- we help you? Yeah. Well, well, thanks for giving me airtime. Uh, it's if you follow me on Twitter at, at Charles Hotel, that's great. Uh, I'm not looking for backers or seeking any kind of, you know, fa- financial help here. Um, but, you know, you, you live in different states. Uh, the, the notion that the Attorney General of Rhode Island would do anything about this is laughable. Uh, but well, we just got the, a new uh, one. We just got a new one. Not that I liked the old one a real lot, but this new one might do something. Is is the new one a Republican or a Democrat? Mm, I'm not sure. I know he had to step in because uh, the last one was a Democrat. Yeah. Well, anyway. Uh, we need to, you know, raise the pressure on 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 this attorneys general. If you have friends who know uh, attorneys general, I know in Minnesota actually uh, has been very helpful to me. They just recently sent me. They have excellent people in their um, attorney general charity bureau office. Um, but you know, I'm pub- publicizing this and hoping that uh, there'll be turnover at the IRS. There has been some turnover at the Department of Justice. I have been pushing on different states and foreign countries to make progress, and everybody's sort of waiting to see. What Trump's going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am too. That is the big question too. because he does seem to have, you know, after he had that ninety-minute meeting with Obama, he just seems to like, you know, everybody. We got to throw her in jail, and then since then, ah, let her go home and heal, or as I say, let her go home and steal. Anyway, we're at the end of the show here. Thanks, <laughs> Charles, so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. We do appreciate it. Welcome to Shadow Citizen with Rachel McIntosh and Robin Sell.